How we doing, everybody? Fantastic. How is uh, how'd your Bible reading go this week? All right, next week it's going to be louder cheers. I get it. We're, we're moving into it. Uh, we are spending this year going through the Word, uh, reading and, and learning. And so as you uh, read, it, it's going to help deepen the sermons to help you understand and grasp it a little bit more. And when we get to December of this year, uh, we as a church will have read through the entire scriptures and really have uh, dug deep into it. Um, I'm going to make some connections this morning because we're going to start in Genesis chapter 12. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Uh, When we finish, we're going to find ourselves in the New Testament. So we're going to take a a few thousand year leap to make some connections this morning. Um, So just to give you a recap, last week we talked about uh, this husband and wife duo, Adam and Eve. Uh, God gave them a garden of Eden. Everything was perfect. Everything was fine. It was going well until the enemy came in the form of a serpent and they took a bite of the fruit. And then we learned that sin had entered into the world by Genesis chapter 3. And what last week should have shown us is that the consequences of sin reveal our need for a Savior. Like, there is no way that we can get out of this, this mess of sin without a Savior being in our lives to be the sacrifice. So today, what I want to do is talk to you about a guy named Abram, who will go on to name will be called Abraham in the scriptures later on. But what I want you to see today is that, number one, Abram means in the scripture, his Hebrew name means an exalted father. It's, it's the Hebrew of the father of many nations. And what I want you to do today is we saw last week that our sin is being seen, that it reveals the need for a savior. Today, I want you to see how the consequences of sin have affected all of humanity. You with me? Everybody's in Genesis chapter 12. All right, the Bible says here, the Lord said to Abram, go from your land, from your relatives and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you into a great nation. There's a promise, right? Then he says, I will bless you. There's a promise, right? And then he says, I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. That's a promise, right? And then he says, anytime God says, I will, that's a promise. And he says, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt, and all of the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. I want you to write this down. God promises. That's a really big deal, right? Because sometimes we need those promises. We need to know. You ever been in those moments of despair and like, I just need to know that it's going to be okay. I just need to know that it doesn't matter how much the world may fall around me, that I need to know that his promises are always yes and amen in him which is what the New Testament tells us. Now, I want you to notice that God meets Abraham. There's this encounter, and when he meets Abraham, he gives Abraham a promise. But in order for this promise to be fulfilled, Abraham's going to have to be obedient. Remember, in, in those last few verses we just read, there are three areas that God is telling Abraham, I need you to detach from these things. And God says, I want you to leave your country I want you to leave your people, and I need you to leave your family. That's a lot, right? I mean, if you want the blessings, there's an obedience, and the obedience is you're going to have to leave your country, your people, and your family. So 
Abram lives in this place called Ur. Everybody say Ur with me. What you mad about? Um, just making sure you're awake. He lived in this place called Ur. Now, this was a pagan community that worshipped a pagan god of the moon. It was a moon god that they worshipped, right? Weird? It's okay to say that was weird. It wasn't a trick question that time. We, I mean, and a lot of times we look at it going, these people are weird, they're worshipping moon gods. But hey, we worship, we worship far worse than that today. We just civilize our idolatry today. And so they're worshiping this moon god. And I want you to notice that Abram's not looking for God. God came looking for Abram. He had his eye on him. He's watching him. And, and when God comes to Abram, Abram is 75 years old. That's what we find out in verse 4. He's 75 years old. And when he left Haran, his wife Sarah is 65 years old. Now, hear me out. Abram's 75, she's 65. Would you agree with me? These are retirement years. Like, why would I want to uproot from my people, from my land? Like, we are on cruise control. We have worked hard all of our lives. We have kids now. They're cutting the grass. We have kids now that they're picking up groceries for. We are living the good life. We have cashed in on the 401. Everything is fine. We can get up as late as we want. We can go wherever we want. We don't have to ask permission for anything because we are in retirement age. Anybody amen to that, you retired people? So think about it. He's retired, living the good life, and he's worked hard all of his life. But let me tell you something, it is often in the most comfortable part of your life when God comes to you. And with Abraham, it is in the most comfortable part of his life that God comes and says, I want to, I'm going to make these promises, but before these promises can come true, there has to be an obedience. Like, you're going to have to do these things. Age should never, ever be an obstacle in our lives. Doesn't matter how old you are, doesn't matter how young you are, age should never be an obstacle. Because God calls Abram at 75 years old. He called Moses at 80 years old, right? He calls Noah to build a big ark in the middle of a desert at 600 years old. Would you say that age is not, doesn't disqualify you? Jesus picked teenagers, a youth group. Just go read about the disciples, and then I want you to come back to that thought. A youth group of kids to change the world. There was no B team. They, they were the team. And, and that's how we got here. Age does not disqualify you from ministry. So at Noah, at 600 years old, God tells him to build an ark. He builds an ark. Some of the greatest steps of faith in our lives might be made in the latter years of our lives. They would say that there's 20-year increments from year one to 20 years old, those are called our foolish years. Now think about where you were between one and 20. There's some foolish things in there, right? And then they would say between 20 to 40, those are our foundational years. Now, women progress a little bit further in this. Men at 20 are still in the foolish years trying to get, it's about 25 or 26 before we finally hit the foundational. And then 40 to 60, they would say are our fruitful years. Anybody attest to that? You would say, you're in the 40 range, and you feel like this, you're actually getting things done now, right? Um, and then 60 to 80, they say that's the fulfilling years, where you get to see all your work. And then when we start to 90 and move up, they say that can be often the most frustrating years. So 
no matter where you find yourself on that scale, God wants to use you. His promises are still true for you too. You don't, you don't age out. So God most often calls us when we are at the most comfortable stage. And I would say this too, that we, we shouldn't be running from something. As, as believers, we should be running to something. Because as long as you're breathing, as long as there's breath in your body, you are still on mission. Matthew chapter 28 has no age requirement where it says at this age you can retire from making disciples. You should always be. And so there's this transition that Abraham's having to make, right? Pretty big. Retirement age, chilling, everything's good, to now God wants me to literally uproot my entire life and follow the calling that he's placed on me. It's a transition, and transitions in life often lead to transformation. Would you agree with that? Like when you look back at some of the transitions that maybe you've had to make in life, there was some transforming that had to happen. Sometimes you had to grow up a little bit when, when you made these decisions. And you can't grow if you stay in the same place. I know that sounds intriguing, but you can't grow if you hang out with the same place. There's a funny saying that always says that, you know, you can't be an eagle soaring when you're hanging out with the turkeys, right? You, you got to get to places and make some transitions. Transition always equals to transformation, but you can't get the transformation if you just stay in the same spot, expecting different results. So Abraham, 75, Sarah, 65, and God calls Abraham to go. Where did God call Abraham to go? He didn't say. Did you catch that? He, he told Abraham, he said, go from your land. But he didn't tell him where to go. He doesn't tell him where he's supposed to go. Now, I want you for a second to imagine with me this conversation with Sarah. Hey, honey, um, I was out, you know, walking today in the village. And um, God told me that we need to leave this place. We need to uproot from, from here, we need to cash in. Um, he wants us to leave. Okay, where are we going? Well, that's the thing. He didn't tell me where we were going, but we just need to start walking, right? Now, how's that conversation going to play out with your spouse? It's the same, guys, as when you go to your wife and say, I want to go into Bass Pro Shop. I'm just going to look. <laughs> she knows what that means. She locks down all the credit cards, everything. Like, you can't. He doesn't tell him where to go. He has no answer for because he doesn't know. John Calvin says it this way. This says this is what God's trying to say to Abraham. He said, I command you to go forth with closed eyes and forbid you to even inquire where I'm about to lead you until having renounced your country, you shall have given yourself wholly to me. When you give yourself wholly to me and surrender, I'll tell you where we're going. But right now, I just need you to start taking steps, taking steps out of this place to go to the next place. And Abraham, I want you to see his faith. Abraham stakes it all on a word from God. God says, if you do this, I'll give you land and I'll give you descendants. And not only does God promise, but here's your second point. God provides. He, there's a provision that's going to help here. He knows that God has called him. He doesn't know where, but he just knows that he has to have some faith and surrender here in order to start taking steps. 
Sometimes our, our not wanting to surrender is because we think we have to take some massive leap of faith. Sometimes it's taking half a step in the right direction. And with every step, your faith will begin to build because you will trust the promises that God gives you. And then there'll come a day where you will see the provision. So look at Genesis chapter 15 with me. We're going to jump, jump just a little bit. In Genesis chapter 15, I want to show you how God is keeping the promise. When the promise that he gives to Abraham, he's going to keep that promise. And he says in verse 1 of chapter 15, I love the sound of Bibles, by the way, when I hear pages turning. Pages turning in the Bible in a church is a growing church. And I'm not talking about numerically. I'm talking about spiritually growing. It's a sweet sound. That and, and kids in the church. Um, after these events, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. He says, do not be afraid. Uh, oftentimes you'll see that phrase pick up a lot in the scripture. Um, because when you see those words, do not be afraid, it's typically something on this side of, of heaven that we're going to be afraid of, like angels coming and speaking to you. Um, so he just kind of, I'm, I'm about to give you some instruction. He said, do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield and your reward will be very great. He's just reminding him of these promises. But Abraham said, Lord God, who can you give me since I am childless and, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus? And Abram, he continued, he said, look, you've given me no offspring. So a slave born in my house will be my heir. He, so he's saying, you're making these promises that, I'm going to be this father of all these nations, but I don't, I don't even have a child. And I'm 75, and she's 65. The math ain't adding up, so I don't think we're going to have kids. And it says, now the word of the Lord came to him. This one will not be your heir. Instead, one who comes from your own body will be your heir. Now, he's got to go back and tell Sarah that this is going to be the thing, too. Like, hey, you remember that conversation I told you that God told us that we needed to leave? Yeah, okay. Hear me out. You're going to get pregnant. You're, he's all, you, no, I'm, I'm 65. That ain't happening. Well, I'm just telling you how this is going to go. He's telling me that you're going to, you're going to bear a son. And he says in verse 5, he took him outside. Abraham is in this tent. His vision is limited. And God has to pull him outside. And he takes him outside. And he said, look at the sky and count the stars. If you're able to count them, then he said to him, your offspring will be that numerous. He's like, I don't have a kid. But you notice that God, even for him to see the provision, God had to get him out of a place. He had to get him out of a tent to where his vision was blinded. And sometimes in order for you to know that God provides on his promises, you've got to get out of that place. There's transitions in your life that you've got to make in order to get to that place that he's calling you. And Abram believed the Lord. Listen to this. He believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness, which means he, you're in right standing with me. Now, what did Abraham do to earn that credit of righteousness in his life? Well, it tells us he just believed. What was, there to, what was the facts there for him to believe? Because I don't have a kid. We're old in age. And you're telling me that I'm going to be the father of all these nations, that my offspring will be as many of the stars in the, in the heavens. But yet, I don't see it here. God will show us what it's going to look like before he shows us what it's actually like where we are. And he's, he's trying to get him to understand, and, and there's a belief that I believe. I see what you're saying. I don't know how we're going to get there, but I'm going to trust the first step to get there. 
And he says this, and I love this language in verse 7. He also said to him, I am the Lord. This is the word Yahweh. And those, those words, uh, it's just spelled out the name Lord. And in the Hebrew, it's yod heid vad heid. Did you hear me breathe in between those syllables? I have to stop. yod heid vad heid. When you would say the name Yahweh in the Hebrew, it's made to pause in between every single letter, reminding you where that breath came from. And he pauses and he says, in this promise, I am Yahweh, who, who brought you from Ur to give you to this land to possess. That's who I am. But he said, Lord God, how can I know that I'll possess the land? Isn't it interesting? He believes there's going to be a child coming from Sarah. But the bigger piece of this is, how can I know that I will possess the land? And he said to him, you bring me a three-year-old cow, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. That's kind of quite a strange request from God, isn't it? Like, what are we, are we having like a, a, a hunt roast or something? Like, what are we doing? And he's brought them, and he said, cut them in half. Cut all these animals in half. And laid the pieces opposite of each other. So put half of it over here and half of it over, over here. So you got half the goat here, half the goat here, half the cow here, half the cow here. Same thing with the ram all the way down. He said, cut them in half pieces opposite each other. But then he did not cut the birds in half. The birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. I'll explain that in a minute. What you're about to see, and we have a front row seat to see a covenant that God's going to make with Abram. And Abraham saying, you show it to me, I want to see the promise. I want to see the promise. I want to know how this is going to play out. And God said, if you want to see it, then you go get these elements for me. You go get these animals. And I'm going to show it. And what God's about to do is engage in this covenant or this promise, this contractual agreement. That I've said, I'm going to do this, but you're going to do this in order for that to happen. There are four covenants in the ancient world. There's a salt covenant. We find that in 2 Chronicles. They would exchange salt as an agreement, right? I'm going to honor what I say, so I'm going to give you some salt. Salt's a very important thing throughout the scriptures. It's purity, it's, uh, it purifies, it cleans, I mean, it sustains. And so you have a salt covenant. You also have um, a shoe covenant. Uh, this was not what I thought it was going to be. I was all about a shoe covenant. Like, I follow God, God blesses the shoes. But the shoe covenant is where one would take off their shoe and they'll give it to the other. The, one, the thing of protection they would hand to the other person. We find this in the book of Ruth. And then there's a hand covenant. Now, this is the one that we do every day. Um, we'll just shake on it, right? We'll just shake on it. This is an agreement. I'm going to do this for you. Let's just shake on it. And then the most intense covenant is the blood covenant. This is what Abraham is being offered by God. God is engaging into a blood covenant. This is where the two parties would take one animal, slice it in half, and lay it side by side so the blood would drain. And it would create this path between the elements. And as the path was made, the one initiating the covenant would actually walk through the elements first. And it was saying, if I don't keep my end of the bargain... 
then you can do to me as we've done to these animals. You can cut me in half and let me drain out. And so it's no accident that God makes this covenant, this blood covenant with Abraham. And here's why. Because God had one end of the bargain, and Abram had the other end of the bargain, right? What was God's end? Well, God said, I will give you land and make you the father of multitudes. And what he's alluding to, and we talked about this last week, is when we said that God would punish the serpent. You remember that? God's going to punish the serpent, and the seed of you will be against the seed of the woman. He, he was talking about how um, there, there's, a, there's a, let me just put it this way, that God's going to be able to fulfill his role, but it's going to be impossible for Abraham. Because the seed of his children are going to be sinful. Look what Paul says. Paul picks this up in Galatians. He says, now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. And he's talking, Paul's, Paul has obviously read Genesis chapter 15 like we just did. And he does not say, and to seeds, as though referring to many. But he says, notice, but referring to one and to your seed, who is Jesus. So using that and going back to that passage, what we see is, I believe that God is letting Abraham in on the plan. That it's not going to be your seeds. It's going to be the seed. It's going to be Jesus, who's going to be the ultimate blood covenant. So what God is saying is that my end of the bargain is to send the Messiah, and Abram's end of the bargain was that God demanded him to be perfect. Now, how well is Abram going to do with this? He's not. So part of this was bad news. Well, I can't do that. I can't be perfect. Like, I'm not even a good communicator. I had to try to communicate to my spouse that we needed to leave a place not knowing where to go, and she needed to trust that she's going to be pregnant. Like, it's, it's tough. So there's no way. If Abram lives a perfect life, and he would be able to keep his end of the bargain, if he's able to keep his end of the bargain, then everything would be good. But the problem is, because of Genesis chapter 3, Abram can't do this because he's a sinner with a sin nature. In other words, in, in this pathway, with these elements, with these animals laying out, if Abram's toe even touches the blood, he's dead. Because he can't do it on his own power. I want you to look at this photo so you can get a little bit of a rendering of what this would look like. Um, they're your animals cut in half. I thought this was probably a more appropriate photo for family, more family-friendly. Um, I don't know why we don't see the. You remember when I was growing up in churches, you had like the nursery scenes painted of biblical scenes? I've never seen this one for some reason, but this would be cool. Um, maybe that one's in youth ministry. But God says, not only do I want to bring, do I want you to bring me one animal? He says, I want you to bring me five. This shows the seriousness of the covenant. God's, God is serious. So why did God tell him not to cut open the birds? Well, he was helping him understand Leviticus chapter. Uh, chapter 117, where it says, do not cut open the birds to keep their intestines from coming out, because that was unclean, right? So this is a front row seat to the covenant. The Bible says in verse 12 of Genesis chapter 15, as the sun was setting, a deep sleep came over Abram, and suddenly great terror and darkness descended on him. Now that phrase, darkness and terror, is a sense of death. God puts him to sleep. And while he's asleep, there's this 
fear of death that comes over him. And there should be. Because what has Abraham just witnessed? A covenant that he cannot by himself succeed in. He can't keep his end of the bargain. If I can't keep my end of the bargain, then what's the punishment? Is death. That if God does his part and I can't do my part, the punishment is death. In other words, I'm going to die because I, I can't fulfill the perfection of the promise. In verse 17, it says, when the sun had set and it was dark, I want you to catch these images now. There's a smoking fire pot and there's a flaming torch that appeared and it passed between these divided animals. So there, there's a smoking fire pot that moves between the animals, walking the track of the blood. And then there's a flaming torch that appears, and it passed between the dividing animals as well. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, I give you this land to your offspring from the brook of Egypt into the great river, the Euphrates River. Did you see those two elements? A smoking pot and a flame, right? A torch. Let me break these down for you. The smoking pot is a picture, is a representation of God. How many times have we seen in the scripture that when there is smoke, it is associated with God? This fire pot had holes in it and around it, and the coals would burn, and they would continuously produce smoke, okay? And so God's always connected with smoke. If you look at Isaiah 30, uh, verse 27, God's anger burns with heavy smoke. It says that his uh, tongue is like a consuming fire. Psalm chapter 18 says that smoke rises from the God's nostrils. And when Moses ascends the mountain to go get the Ten Commandments, what does God cover the mountain with? Smoke. It's a sim symbolic of his presence. That's the first element. The second element is the torch because in the Bible, there's a flaming torch. The torch is never, ever connected with humans. A torch is always connected with God. When he talks to Moses in the desert, he talks to him as a burning bush, right? When he leads the people through the promised land out of Egypt, he comes as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire, a torch by night. So what is it saying? God is saying to Abraham, I'll keep my end of the bargain as, as a, a smoking pot. It's always going to be connected with God. My presence will always be here. And he says, and I'll keep your end of the, I'll, listen, I will keep your end of the bargain. Not, Abraham, you're going to need to keep your end of the bargain by the flaming torch. He's saying, I'm going to keep my promise, and I'm going to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. I'm going to walk through. Moses is in the, I mean, Abraham is in the sleep. And while he's sleeping, God walks the path for him. Clearly for him. Because Moses, I don't know why I got Moses stuck in my head. I'm already working on the next thing. Anyway, Moses isn't here yet. Um, he's still waiting to get in that basket. So, but Abram, Abram is, is realizing that God's making this promise that I can't fulfill because I got sin. I, I have been completely covered in sin. And now what he has done 
is God has walked the path. He did for me what I could not do for myself. And he's going to uphold the covenant. I just have to be obedient. And that was the promise of this covenant. And what I think is happening, I believe what God is doing is sovereignly sentencing Jesus to the cross in this very moment. Oh, it's amazing how the Old Testament and the New Testament connect. I told our our Wednesday night Bible study group that the Old Testament is is an outline of Jesus. But when we get to the New Testament, it puts color to that photo so that we can see it clearly. There's some connections here. Because of this blood covenant, Jewish people, because of this event, thousands of years later, twice a day, every day, they would offer an innocent, spotless lamb to God in sacrifice for a blood covenant to him. Every single day. They would take a lamb at 9 a.m., which is called the third watch, and they would take a lamb at 3 p.m., which is the ninth watch. And every single day, offer it to the Lord. It didn't matter what the weather was. It didn't matter what the day was. It didn't matter what the holiday was. Every single day, at nine and at three, there would be a blood covenant, a blood sacrifice from a lamb in the temple in Jerusalem. Every single day. And they would say, God, do not forget your promise. Do not forget your promise. Save us. Save us from our sin. Do not forget your promise. At 9 a.m. and at 3 p.m. every day, same prayer, same sacrifice. You want to know how much God hates sin? Look at how much bloodshed had to happen. What do you think he's trying to tell us about our sin? A priest at 9 a.m., would stand on the highest point of the, of the temple and would blow a shofar. I was going to bring one today, but I didn't do it because I don't have one. <laughs> I, was gonna, I had a really cool joke because I was going to ask how you're doing. You're going to tell me good, and you're going to ask me how I was doing. I say, shofar is so good, but I didn't, <laughs> didn't have it. It's my favorite joke in Israel. Israelis do not like it, but I think it's funny. The priest... The, They would stand on the temple and they would blow the shofar at nine and at three. And here's what they were doing, letting everybody know, everybody within the walls of the city, that a sacrifice, and and it's a sacrifice for your sin, and we're crying out that God would fulfill his promise. By the way, when Peter (coughs) denies Jesus, he says, when you deny me, what will happen? When would it happen? When the rooster crows, that translation is not an animal. It is a man standing on the highest point of the temple, blowing the shofar three times to let you know the sacrifice has been made for your sin at three and at nine. So the priest would blow the shofar's ram's horn, and then there would be a, a priest underneath him holding the lamb, and they would slice its neck. And the blood would pour. And they would make the sacrifice. Are you ready for this? 1,500 years later, after the promise is given to Abraham, God comes through with his promise. He comes through 
on the greatest festival of the year. He, he decides the best time to come through on the promises at Passover, where there'll be millions of people covered the city, millions of people coming into Jerusalem to make their sacrifices for their families and for themselves for the sins and to have atonement. It's a day of atonement. And the Passover on this year, 1,500 years later, is different because there's a man who's walking out of the city with a cross on his back who is being beaten and ridiculed and he's bloody from this beating and everybody has deserted him and he's walking the hill of Mount Moriah to take his place on the cross. And when they get to the place of the crucifixion, they throw him down on this tree and they begin to nail him and, and put nails through his hands and through his feet. And I believe as the hammer was coming down, the horn in the temple rings out. Now, what time was the horn blown? Let's read this in Mark chapter 15. It says, they brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the scroll. And they tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And then they crucified him, and they divided his clothes, casting lots for them to decide what each would get. And now it was, what time was it? Do you ever notice that that was in the scripture? That's pretty important. At nine in the morning, when they crucified him, while the people are preparing the festivals in the city, they're getting to see all their family and friends and people they haven't seen since the last Passover, and, and they're celebrating. While they're doing all that, there's a man hanging on the cross. At 9 a.m., when that horn sounds, the very words of Jesus of, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? While people are gathered with friends and family, this man is being crushed for their transgressions. And the Bible says that he hung there for six hours. Look what Mark has to say in verse 33. When it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until what time? Until three. You see the significance here? Every time that, that trumpet sounded from the temple was to let you, begging for God to fulfill the promise. And this time, it's not just the trumpet sounding. It is the very voice of God crying out through the city on this hill. And I believe the priest was getting in position again at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, getting ready to blow the horn while the other was holding the knife, and the countdown began of 3, 2, one, and then Jesus lifts his head and he says, it is finished. Not you're finished. The promise is finished. The work, of, uh, the, work the covenant has been fulfilled. You don't need to save that lamb because I am the lamb. Don't make that sacrifice again. You don't have to do these religious practices again. I am the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. And he cries out. And he's saying, all the killing and bloodshed's finished. The devil's finished. The hold on the grave is finished. Jesus said, it's all finished. I fulfilled the promise. And at the time, Jesus has given his spirit to the Father on the cross. Luke tells us that there's something else amazing that happens in the temple. The very veil that covered us from being able to go into the place of the Holy of Holies, where only the highest priest could go. This veil, it was 60 foot by 20 feet wide. 
60 inches thick to protect us from going in. Serving as a dividing wall between God and man. Only one man had access to the other side. That was the priest who would go in on Yom Kippur, which was the day of the atonement on behalf of the people. That dividing wall was destroyed when Jesus gave his spirit. It was torn from top to bottom. Now, whenever a Jewish person in the Bible would get overwhelmed with anguish, they would tear their garments. They would rip their garments. We, we see this when David heard about the death of Saul. He rips his garments. Could it be that not only has God broken down the wall of hostility between man and himself, but could it be that we are seeing a loving father in anguish over the death of his one and only son? God gave us his one and only prized possession, his son, because he loved us that much. So why would we stay away from a God who has given us full access to him? I want you to take just 30 seconds, and I want you to think about how God has kept his promises. It wasn't coincidence that Jesus would cry out on the cross at 9 and at 3. But here's the thing. Many people missed what happened on Golgotha that day. They listened to the trumpet, not to the voice. And they're caught up in religious practices trying to just appease God and I hope God's going to love me and I want God to pay attention to me. And they get caught up in the law that they miss that the relationship has been established. It's no coincidence that when God tells Moses that day, when he makes that blood covenant with those animals, walk that path of the blood and he says I'm going to do for you didn't Jesus didn't Jesus come to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves we can't save ourselves we can't perfect I mean it'd be nice if we had perfection that our bumper sticker said that my kid's a perfect kid I'm a perfect parent I'm a perfect co-worker I'm a perfect person but the truth is it would say I am a sinful person but thank God for Jesus, who restores that which was broken. This morning, I want us to reflect on that blood covenant. Because see, it wasn't just a covenant made to Abraham. It was a covenant made to you and to me. That he's restored us to. You and I do not need, you don't have to come to me to pray on your behalf. You have full access to the Father because of the Son right? And we can pray. We can pray for one another. And here's the good thing, that when we cry out to God, he hears us. Because if he didn't hear his children, what, what kind of a father would that be? But he hears us and he wants to. This is why I think worship is so important. This is why I think it's so important that we sing. We're not singing to one another. We're singing to our father about the goodness of, of him and the goodness of his son. It's not about us. And you may say, I don't sing well. Does it matter? Because God just wants to hear you, his sons and daughters. So as we go into this time, we're going to sing and we're going to respond. We have communion set up because it's, it's good to go and take communion to remember those elements of the, the blood that was 
shed for us and the body that was broken, as Jesus told those disciples on that night of their Last Supper. And we have a place for you to take communion. We have a place for you to go and pray. You can go to the cross. And if you have prayer requests that you want us to pray over, we want to pray over them. You can put them on the cross. We'll have somebody from our prayer team back there to pray for you. But such a high price demands such a great response. The gospel always demands a response on our end. This is why we sing after the message. This is why we have elements to worship with. Because the gospel demands a response. Would you pray with me? So Father, this morning I pray, Lord, for every person that's in this place. God, I pray that there was a covenant established so many years ago that from the moment that that fruit was eaten, two verses into that, you told us the promise that there would be a seed. And that seed is Jesus, who has come and fulfilled the promise, the very promises of Abraham, that he would be a father of many nations. God, we know, we know what you did through him. They have their son Isaac. And God, we can trace the lineage of Jesus all the way back to Abraham. Thank you for being a God who fulfills his promises every single time. And I pray as we respond this morning that we will sing a little louder. We will pray. God, take communion in the back. And remember that we serve a God who is a promise maker and a promise keeper. And I pray these things in your name.